Well, join me in John chapter 14 as we come to the preaching of God's word. John chapter 14. And this is one of the most comforting chapters for God's people in all of the Bible. Because it is a chapter designed to have one main goal, and that is to give hope where there is heartache, and strength where there is sorrow, and comfort when chaos surrounds on every side. John chapter 14, look at verse 1, this sets the tone and the stage for everything that follows in this chapter. Jesus says this, do not let your heart be troubled. Drop down to verse 27, where Jesus will repeat himself. This is a bookend now for this chapter. Everything in the middle falls in to these two verses. Solidifying the theme, Jesus again says, do not let your heart be troubled. He then adds, nor let it be fearful. The word troubled here, terasso, a strong and picturesque word. In the physical realm, it means to be stirred up. And we've seen this word before back in John chapter 5, verse 7. Same word described the pool of waters that began to ripple and move. It's what the ocean does when a storm is coming. The waves become agitated and volatile. Bring that into the emotional realm. The word troubled means to shudder or shake on the inside, to become restless, anxious, nervous, grieve, distressed, stricken with fear, filled with confusion and uncertainty. The reason is because we look around and nothing makes sense. We feel that we're walking on shaky grounds, We see a world that is in disarray and we're puzzled by what's happening. It could be a sense of helplessness. We realize we can't change any of the circumstances that we're in. There could be hopelessness. There's fear that the darkness that surrounds will have no end or will have no greater purpose. This is the plague of man ever since the fall. We've all been there. Job 5, for man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Job 14.1, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Think of Peter. Peter warned, 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised when trouble comes. Why are we surprised? Why does it catch us off guard? Do not be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. Trouble in this life is not strange or abnormal. Trouble is not foreign for the believer. Uncertainties are promised. In fact, think of Jesus' words in Matthew 6. Do not worry about tomorrow. Do not worry about tomorrow. Why, Jesus? Is it because the believer is immune from heartache? Is it because Christ's people are exempt from distress? No, here's Jesus' reason. Because each day has enough trouble of its own. So don't be worried about tomorrow because you have turmoil now. Don't think ahead. 
John 16, very clear. In the world, you have tribulation. It's a settled fact. And yet, what do we find in verse 1 of chapter 14? Though troubles will surround us on the outside, the great hope for the believer is that trouble does not have to enter the inside. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Heart, referring to the center of our personality, the seat of our emotion and will. Outside chaos, according to Jesus, does not need to become inner turmoil for the believer. Again, to ask the why question, why Jesus? Answer, because we are Christ's. And because we are Christ, we have been given his peace. Look at verse 27. Peace, the very opposite of trouble and turmoil. This is an inner calmness, a composed tranquility. Peace, I leave with you. Well, what, what is this peace? This is my peace. This is divine peace. This is Christ's peace. Same peace that kept Jesus calm when betrayed and faithful when pierced. Jesus says, I give that peace to you. You're my people. This is my gift. Again, verse 27. It's a special peace. Only believers can enjoy this. This is peace not as the world gives, completely different. So we've entitled this chapter, this series, A Tranquil Heart in Troubled Times. A Tranquil Heart in Troubled Times. Let's lead into this a bit. Why does Jesus spend 31 verses? This is one third of his farewell address to his apostles. One third. Why does he spend 31 verses on the need for his apostles to guard against a troubled heart? Because Jesus knows the next three days, he knows the next three days will be the worst three days of his apostles' lives. He knows what's coming for them. As verse one opens, the apostles have been shaken to their core. They're reeling from what Jesus has just told them back in chapter 13 from verse 21 on. Look back to verse 21. He's told them that he will be betrayed by one of their own. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you that one of you, very personal, one of you will betray me. He's then told them in verse 33 that he's going to be leaving them very soon. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. In verse 31, he tells them that he's going to die in verse 38, he predicts the failure of Peter, the head of this chosen band. What is he going to do? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Peter will fail. You can also add to this Jesus' warning in Luke chapter 22. And his warning is this. Satan is going to actively work against you on this night. Satan has demanded permission to sift you, specifically Peter, to sift you like wheat. He wants to destroy your faith. 
And then Jesus tells all the apostles, Matthew 26, that all of them would fall away in fear. You will all, not just Peter, you will all fall away because of me this night. They will flee the Roman guards. They'll hide themselves in an upper room. So Jesus is rocking their world. They are dazed. They're confused. They're dismayed by Jesus' departure. They're in shock by his coming death. They're in denial of his predictions. They're wondering why their master, who has shown them great love these last three years, the master who they left everything to follow, they've rested all of their hopes in him. They're wondering why he is talking about leaving them, abandoning them alone. They're becoming anxious because they are about to lose their spiritual father. Look at verse 18, chapter 14, verse 18. Jesus promises them, I will not leave you as orphans. That's what they think is going to happen. They're going to be left alone. I will not leave you as orphans. The world is crashing all around them. Everything that they had known for the last three years is about to end. They feel helpless. They feel hopeless. Which is why you can translate Jesus' words in verse one, do not let your hearts be troubled. Actually translate it this way, stop your heart from being troubled. Stop this. Because they're emotionally shaken. Their hopes are shuddering at this moment. They're distressed and they are dismayed. This is a unique time in redemptive history. The grief that these men will soon face, the trouble that is on their horizon is greater than any grief we will ever experience in our lifetime. Their grief. Their loss is deeper than any loss we could experience. They are about to have God leave them. Which means that Jesus' reasons for a tranquil heart here in this chapter, the reasons the counsel he gives his apostles in these next 31 verses, these are far more, these are far more than what we need in our troubled times. These will be words that are able to renew our faithfulness in him, in our savior. Promises that we can cling to to fight against a troubled heart and keep outside chaos from becoming inside turmoil. Now we'll spend a few weeks or more in this chapter. And as we enter the chapter, we do need to start with some general observations, some initial thoughts, kind of set the stage for what's coming. This is so applicable, profound, applicational. Begin in an overview fashion. These are five observations. Again, just to ground ourselves as we think, as we're thinking through this chapter. Here's the first one. This is the foundational reason. Number one here, observation number one. This is the foundational reason we never need to be troubled in heart. It is because Christ purchased 
our tranquil heart through his troubled soul. Christ purchased our tranquil heart through his troubled soul. What is striking when you come to verse 1 is that Jesus commands his apostles to not be something troubled. He commands his apostles to not be something that Jesus himself actually was. So remember back to chapter 11. As Jesus stood before Lazarus' tomb, what are we told? Chapter 11, he was deeply moved in spirit and was what? Troubled, same word. Jesus was troubled. It's the same word that's used here in verse one. Do not let your heart be troubled. And yet Jesus was troubled. Anguish filled his heart. He's horrified on the inside back in chapter 11. He's unsettled. He's stirred up. One translation put chapter 11, verse 33 this way. Jesus gave way to such distress of spirit as made his body tremble at that moment. His troubled soul caused his body to shake. And then you come to chapter 12, verse 27. 12, 27, you have Jesus saying, now my soul has become troubled. Again, same word, distressed, dismayed. He's agitated on the inside. My soul has become troubled. Look back at chapter 13, verse 21. In the upper room, again repeated, when Jesus had said this, he announced his coming betrayal, he became troubled. Same word, troubled in spirit. Three times, Jesus is what he commands his apostles and us not to be. And it's a troubled soul we see vividly in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus falls to the ground. He pleads with his father. If there's any other way to pay for the sins of his people, let him go that way. He's sweating drops of blood because of his spiritual anguish. He's so troubled that the father sends an angel to strengthen him. Why? Because Jesus, if that angel does not come, does not strengthen him, Jesus will die in that garden. It's the troubled soul of our Savior. And in each case, we read that his heart is troubled. In each case, Christ was troubled because of his coming cross. Each case. He was troubled because he knew that sin would be credited to his account. And so it makes sense. The Holy One is troubled He's holy, he hates sin, but now sin will be credited to him. He's shaken because he knows what his father is going to do. His father will forsake him and crush him. He's disturbed on the inside because he would soon exhaust the wrath of God and the justice of God and the holiness of God against sin for all who would come to him in saving faith. He knows what's coming. It troubles him severely. He's troubled because he knows the prophecies. He knew he would fulfill Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew he would fulfill Isaiah 53. It pleased the Lord to crush him. 
putting him to grief. He knows that first gospel promise in Genesis chapter three, the powers of darkness would have their way with him, would bruise him. First Peter two sums it up. Christ knows that he will bear our sins in his body on the cross. He's trembling because he knew he would battle temptation until the very end, never breaking. He shuddered because he was and is the Savior. And in so doing, his troubled soul, through his troubled soul, through his cross, he purchased every spiritual blessing for us so that we never need to be troubled, ever. It is through his troubled soul that he purchased our joy. It is only because of the cross that we can consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, various troubles. It's only through his troubled soul that he purchases our security, that nothing and no one will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, the crucified, troubled Savior, Lord. It's only through his troubled soul that he purchased our heavenly home. Look at chapter 14, verse 2. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because in my Father's house are many dwelling places and I go to prepare that place for you. I'm preparing that place for you through the cross. Think of Romans 8. It's through the troubled heart of Christ that he purchases our reconciliation on the cross. God, if God is for us, who is against us? He purchased our redemption, our justification, our sanctification, our glorification. He purchases it all through his troubled soul. Every promise he gives us in chapter 14, and we will work our way eventually through every promise, each remedy for a troubled heart, all of it, every promise is grounded upon the agony of his death. His troubled heart means our tranquil heart. So this is why in verse one, Jesus commands us to be untroubled. He commands us to be what he was not. He purchases our tranquility through his trouble. Second, second general observation here. We see Jesus' concern for his apostles. We see the depth of Christ's compassion for us. We see the depth of Christ's compassion for us. It's all throughout the farewell address, but especially in this chapter. Again, Jesus knows what's in store for him. He's predicted every detail. He knows it's been coming for some time. Back in chapter two, the first time he enters Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple. He upsets the religious leaders. What do we read there? Zeal for your house will consume me. It's not that the zeal consumes Christ. It's that his zeal for the house of God will eventually lead to the religious leaders consuming him. The word means destroy, to eat up. They're going to devour him because of his love for his father. But he knows it's coming very early on. 
In John 6, he talks about giving his flesh and his blood. In John 10, he's the good shepherd who's killed by the wolf. Back in John 12, he's the one lifted up from the earth, lifted up on a cross. So he knows what is coming. And yet what do we see as chapter 14 opens? As the physical agony begins to sap our Savior's energy, takes a toll on him, he's going to be up all night. Be forced to stand trial before an unjust course, a court all night. He'll be so physically drained he cannot carry his own crossbar. As the physical agony begins for him, as the emotional torment mounts, one of his own, again, is now indwelt by Satan. His betrayer has been dismissed. The spiritual agony is now closer than ever before. And yet at that moment, when Jesus had every right in the world to think of himself, to take care of only himself, we see him more concerned for his apostles. He's living out, chapter 13, verse 34, love one another. He is loving his apostles. He's concerned for their endurance, for their faith, for their fortitude, for their comfort. Everything here is about them. In chapter 17, he will pray for himself, but here he's concerned for them. So the application we can draw from this is how much more, how much more is Christ concerned for us right now as he sits at his Father's right hand? If he was concerned for his own when experiencing a troubled soul, how much freer, if I can use that kind of language, how much freer is he to be concerned for us while experiencing unmatched glory? John 14 is a living picture of Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He sympathizes with us because he's endured every trouble we face. And he experienced it to a far greater depth than we ever will. Every temptation, he never sinned. He's the one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, here's the application. Now that he's ascended to heaven, we must never doubt his care for us. We must never downplay his compassion for us. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to his throne of grace. He is there willing and he is there ready. This is confidence that we come to the throne of grace, confidence based upon his once troubled soul. We don't need to be troubled because we can approach the one who was troubled for us so that we may receive mercy. When weak and we need mercy, we go to him. We can find grace to help in our time of need. It's the compassion we see here. He's always ready. He's always willing. Christ is coming to the aid of his apostles in chapter 14. 
It's a reminder that he is always ready to come to our aid now. One commentator wrote this, wonderful words, referring to chapter 14, wonderful words in this awful hour of unparalleled events looming. The Lord does not think of himself. Just ponder that for a moment. He does not think of himself. Again, knowing what's coming. The heart trouble of his beloved disciples occupies his loving heart. Another one might have sought comfort. He seeks none, but instead he comforts. It's the depth of Christ's compassion for his own. It is unmatched. Again, he is always ready. Third observation. Third observation. This chapter is a reminder that Christ's ways are always greater than our wants. Christ's ways are always greater than our wants. The disciples do not want the pain Jesus' departure is going to cause them. They do not want him to leave. They do not want him to be betrayed. They do not want him to die. But what they fail to realize is that Jesus must leave them. He must. And the pain that that would cause was a necessary means for their good. Not only must Jesus die for their sins, what Jesus said at the end of chapter 13, but he will make clear in this chapter that he must leave them so that he can ascend to his Father, and in so doing, he can send them his Spirit. His leaving means the Spirit's coming to seal them and indwell them and teach them. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, I will, future tense, I will ask the Father. This is after his departure. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you for how long? Forever. I must leave, but the Spirit will come forever. Who is the Spirit? This is the Spirit of truth, and he will be in you. Huge shift in redemptive history. He will now indwell you and seal you. But that can only happen if I ascend to my Father, if I leave you. And Jesus makes clear for his apostles that he must leave them in order for them to write the New Testament scriptures for us. That's verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, whom the Father will send in my name after I leave you, after I pray for this, he, the Spirit, will teach you all things, specifically what things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That's why we have the Gospels. So he must leave, Christ must leave in order for the Spirit to breathe out his New Testament words. But the apostles see none of this. It's not where their mind is. Their minds are too selfish. Their wants are too small. 
And I think we can apply that to ourselves, right? So often we are too selfish, our wants are too small. Look at verse 28. This is why Jesus tells them, you have heard that I said to you, I go away. This is not new. I've been saying this from the beginning. You've heard this. And then the statement, if you loved me, if your love for me was controlling you right now, you would have rejoiced, not being troubled. You would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. You don't see it now. But my departure, though it will cause you great pain and sorrow, it is for your joy later. Trust me. Again, you don't see it now. Your wants are too small. Look at chapter 16. This is enough for Jesus to repeat this. Chapter 16, verse 7. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? It is to our advantage that Jesus is not here right now because we have his spirit. We'll look at that as we work our way through. But it is to your advantage that I go away. The apostles saw it as a detriment, a hindrance. And Jesus says for, continuing the verse four, if I do not go away, if I do what you want me to do, if I answer your prayer the way you're praying it, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's better that I go away. You don't see it now, but you will. So Jesus was actually serving them by going away. Their present pain was the necessary means for their future joy, their advantage. Well, this is no different for us today. There are times when God's best for us necessitates great sorrow. But through all of it, we can rest assured Christ's ways are always better than our wants. Always. Back to, verse, uh, to chapter 14. Number four, fourth general observation here. A tranquil heart requires faith in a perfect God. A tranquil heart requires faith in a perfect God. This is not just faith in faith. This is faith in the perfections of a living, working, sovereign Lord. So look at verse one. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Here's the command now. Believe, trust, rest, be convinced, depend on, believe in God. And this belief is not justifying faith. This is not initial faith. The apostles already believe that Christ is Lord. They're already putting these words, save from their sins. And Jesus is calling for a sanctifying faith here. Keep on maintaining your trust in the faithfulness and the promises of my Father. Believe in God. Never forget his sovereignty. Never forget his trustworthiness. Never forget his omniscience, omnipotence, his faithfulness. Never forget his perfections. Continue to fall back on his love for his glory and his love for his own. Believe in God. 
It is the Lord's faithfulness that casts out fear. It is the Lord's perfections that settles our soul. What Jesus is doing here is he's bringing his apostles' minds back to the Old Testament promises. He's reminding his apostles of all those Old Testament calls to trust the one true and living God. Those commands are also commands for you. Think of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I what? I fear no evil. I guard my heart from being troubled. Why? Why? It's because of the perfections of God. It's because I remember that my God is imminent and he's caring. I fear no evil. Why? Because you, transcendent sovereign one, you're with me. You're caring, you're compassionate, you're imminent. You can trust in a God during these times because he's not locking himself in heaven. He's among his people. How about Deuteronomy 3? Do not fear. Do not fear. Why? Because God is all powerful for the Lord. Yahweh, your God, is the one fighting for you. That's why you don't need to fear. If God is for us, who's against us? Joshua 8. Now Yahweh said to Joshua, do not fear or be dismayed. That sounds like John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Very similar. Why? Because you serve the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Because he has given into your hand the king that you're fighting. That's why you don't have to fear. He's sovereign. Psalm 119, oh, may your loving kindness comfort me. May your loving kindness comfort me. Tranquil hearts rest in God's never failing love. These are his perfections. It's not faith in something. This is faith in God as goodness. One more, Isaiah 41. Do not fear. Again, why? For I am with you. That's comforting. Do not fear I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. We do not fear because of the godness of God. All these commitments in the Old Testament to trust, to not fear, to remain calm in the midst of chaos, to not allow anxiety to overwhelm us. All of those commitments are based upon the perfections of our God, his imminence, his might, his sovereignty, his love, his goodness. You can go on and on with that list. So Jesus is drawing them back. Believe in this God. Do not fear because of the godness, the perfections of this God. Declare with the psalmist, Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. And then this question, what can mere man do to me? What's the answer to that? What can mere man do to me? Answer, nothing. Of eternal significance, nothing. So Christ is grounding them on the goodness and the sovereignty, the perfections of the Father. But... Christians are Trinitarian. Yes, we rest on the perfections 
of our Father, but we also trust in the promises of the Son. So this is now the fifth general observation here when it comes to a tranquil heart. Observation number five, and this is going to lead into this series. Observation number five, a tranquil heart only comes when we cling to right theology. A tranquil heart only comes when we cling to right theology. Notice what Jesus says next. Believe in God. Think of all those Old Testament promises. Believe in God. And then he adds this. Believe also in me. Believe also in me. This is an amazing declaration from Jesus. Because right at this moment, he is placing his words on par with God's words. He's placing his perfections on par with his father's perfections. Believe in God in that same way you believe in me. Every first century Jew knew the Old Testament expectation. Believe in God. It's clear. But now Jesus says, trust in me too. Our God is a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so you see that in this chapter. Believe in the Father, verse 1. Believe in me and the Son. And I will ask for the Father to send you the Spirit. Our tranquil heart is because of the Trinity at work within us. Specifically, what is Jesus calling his apostles to believe? He's calling his apostles to believe every trouble heart promise that Jesus gives them in the next 30 verses. Believe in me. Believe what I'm going to tell you. But here's what I want you to notice. For the rest of this chapter, Jesus gives no simplistic statements. No simplistic statements. No Christianese cliches. He has no Facebook memes at this moment. He's not going to say, here are three easy steps for a tranquil heart. Because that is not how you remain calm when the storms of adversity darken around you. Those are powerless. The only way to battle fear, the only way to endure trial, the only way to not let your heart be troubled is to be grounded in and cling to divine, redemptive, weighty, never-changing eternal truth. The anchor that holds in the midst of trouble is the anchor that clings to right theology. Because it never changes. And it's strong enough to endure. So notice what Jesus promises his apostles here, us by extension. What were they to cling to? What are they going to trust in? Notice the first one. Jesus promises them that his father's house, heaven, glory, his father's house is their future home. That's why they don't have to be troubled. That's verse two. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because in my father's house are many dwelling places. And I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going through the cross to do this. If I go and prepare a place for you, here's the promise. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. That's theology. 
It's a theology of heaven. He anchors his apostles in their guaranteed future to relieve any fear that might overwhelm them here in the present. Look at verse 10. Here's another promise, assurance. He assures his apostles that his Trinitarian unity, his unity with the Father, guarantees their acceptance by the Father. That's verse 10, watch. Do you now believe that I am in the Father? That's why you're growing fearful here because you're forgetting my unity with the Father. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Drop down to verse 20. I am in my Father. Now watch this. And you in me and I in you. This is mutual indwelling. The Son and the Father, the Father and the Son. The Son's in us, we're in the Son. Why is this important? Because this is where our spiritual security is found. Christ's union with his Father and the Father's union with Christ, coupled with Christ's union with us, is what grounds verse three. Look at it. You and me, I and you. That grounds, verse three, that where I am, my Father's house, there you may be also. The Father will accept you into his presence because you are in me. We need not fear. We have this unity with the Son and the Son has a unity with his Father. It's so much better than a Christian cliche, isn't it? This is weighty. Look at the third one, verse 13. We have access to our Savior and the Sovereign One through prayer, no matter where you are at all times. We have access to that throne of grace. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So you come to me in prayer. We will answer that prayer for it brings glory to the Father. Look at verse 16. Here's a fourth promise. It's going to calm his apostle's heart by promising them again that Holy Spirit. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Again, my leaving means the Spirit's coming. The more we understand about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the more we will be comforted. A fifth one, Christ promises not only the Spirit's coming, but this is just mind-boggling. He promises the Father and the Son coming to the believer. Verse 23. My Father will love him, and we, the Father and the Son, we will come to him. Speaking of the believer, will come to him and make our abode. The word is home. We will make our home with him. Again, grasping the Trinity's indwelling, that's what eases our troubled soul, our troubled heart. All of these will go back to that statement, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, if God has made his home in us, what trouble is there? I'll just give you one more. Drop down 
to verse 27 there. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Why? Verse 29, because I have told you before it happens, I know all things in the future. If I wanted to stop anything, I would. I've told you before it happens, my death, all of the sin that will surround this, the evil, the anger, all of that is a part of the Father's sovereign decree. It will happen just as the Father has planned so that when it happens, you may believe your faith in me will be strengthened. And then this note, verse 30, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming. This is evil personified. Satan is on his way. Evil will succeed like never before in all human history. But here's the promise. He, Satan, the ruler of the world, he has nothing in me. He has nothing in me. His evil schemes will not succeed. He will not be victorious. J.C. Ryle wrote, Satan cannot overthrow me. He can lay nothing to my charge. I shall come forth from the trial more than a conqueror. This is why we read in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors because we're united to the conqueror. He's assuring his apostles that his father's sovereign decree will not and cannot be thwarted even by the ruler of this world. And that's just a sampling, a sampling of Jesus' troubled heart promises. All in all, there are 12 promises Christ gives his apostles here, 12 of them. And each one is meant to anchor their faith. And every single one of them is theological in nature, grounded in the reality of who God is. And every single one of them is for us too because we are Christ's. So the principle is simply this, the stronger your theology is, the, the greater understanding that you have of who God is and his promises for you, the deeper the anchor of your faith will grip and the longer that anchor will hold as the trials and troubles of life batter our hearts and they will. We're born for trouble. But we have promises that the trouble on the outside does not have to be the trouble on the inside. And so that's where we'll begin next week in verses two through seven by looking at Jesus's very first promise. Our hearts never need to be troubled because the Father's house is our future home. The Father's house is our future home, guaranteed. Father, you have been so gracious to us because you have not left us by ourselves. You have given us your spirit to teach and to sanctify. And you have given us your word that grounds us in who you are. You could have left us without these promises, but you chose not to. You have given us something to cling to and it's all because of your perfections and your greatness. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We can trust in that.
So I pray as we work our way through this chapter that you would change us to men and women who have continued faith, active faith, sanctifying faith in you, that we would guard our hearts and that we would bring glory to your name through it. We pray all of this because of Christ. Amen.